All right. Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Doug. I'm uh, a pastor at Parkview, and um, we are really excited about a partnership that's brewing and developing here. So it's a great honor to be here. I think this is my third or fourth time to be up here, and um, it's an honor to do it. I'm glad Josh is getting a break with the family, so be praying for him to have a good, restful week away. So, And it's good to see. I know we've got some people from Parkview that are coming out here, and so I see familiar faces both from Heartland and Parkview. So just very excited for what you guys are stepping into, what we're stepping into together. It's going to take a lot of humility, uh, a lot of just courage and stepping forward and excited to see what God's going to do. So for some of you uh, Heartland folks, my I've got three-fourths of my remaining family members here, and my wife loves being in the spotlight, so I thought I should recognize her. So my wife, Lori, is here. She's worked at Garner for a couple years, so I feel like she knows half of Heartland already because of that. My son, Caleb, went to Garner, had Mr. Martinez as one of his teachers, and it was a great year, so Caleb and my daughter, Hannah, went to North Central, West High, and now she's at Iowa, so... They're cheering us on. Our fourth member of the immediate family is in Hawaii for the summer, suffering there. So, but she's, uh, she's a UNI student, and she's there working with military kids for the summer. So that's where she is. So super excited. Today we're going to be looking at Psalm 34. So if you have a Bible or an app on your phone, you want to start swiping. We're going to be in Psalm 34. And so the uh, series we're doing this summer is called Pursuing God's Heart. And um, we're looking at the life and the Psalms of David. David was called in the Bible, a man after God's own heart. And so it was interesting when God picked David to be the next king of Israel, he was just a teenager. He was uh, a shepherd. And so when all these other strapping, strong candidates for king were around, God chose David and picked him from the sheepfolds and made him king because God liked what he saw in his heart. And so the whole reason we're looking at this series this summer is that we want to be a church. We want to be families. We want to be people that pursue God's heart, just like David did. So because God will look through this room and he'll look at the outsides. You know, we try to impress each other with what's on the outside. But God zeroes in on what's most important about us, and that's our heart. And so uh, Psalm 34, you're going to love the backstory here because it comes right on the heels of a real hard time in David's life. And you can really tell a person's character in two situations, when they're going through prosperity and when they're going through adversity. And so we're going to get a glimpse of what David was like when he went through adversity. In Psalm 34, uh, the whole book of Psalms, maybe you didn't know this, but the word psalm means, means song in the Greek language. So this is like a playlist of the songs that God's people used to sing. And then if you move ahead to the time of Jesus, Psalm 34 was one of the most sung songs during Jesus' day. So if Jesus had a Spotify list of songs he would listen to, Psalm 34 would be on that. It was, the, it was like a hit song in that day, like a Chris Tomlin song. It was, this was a psalm that a lot of people knew. And the reason that's really cool is that a third of the Bible is written in poetry and in song. Like God doesn't want our faith just to be a logical thing you figure out in your head. He wants our faith to be something that just erupts from our hearts, that involves not just our minds, but our hearts and emotions too, especially when you talk about something like affliction, like that we're going to see today, because even Christians uh, can go through affliction. Like, in fact, Jesus said, uh, if they persecuted me, guess what? They're going to persecute you also. I met with some of our college students this Monday night, and we were talking about how do you live out your faith on the University of Iowa campus. And 
honestly, the first wave of response we got is, it is hard to follow Jesus on our campus today. And story, 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 you know, misconception, people are going to think you're this or that if you say you follow Jesus. So, but also just like the hardships we bring on ourselves by being stupid, like when we sin and wreck things up, or um, even just the physical things that can come. When I, I prayed with our team at Central Campus this morning, and one of the worship leaders' dad just died um, a day before, uh, and he's up there leading worship and, and singing about God, but he's singing from a place of grief this morning. I, it was like two weeks ago, one of our college pastors' mom died suddenly, just walking a dog and had a double brain aneurysm, and I got to see him speak at his mom's funeral and just proclaim the gospel strongly. So affliction is, is coming, but Psalm 34 is going to give us some great truths to cling to, all right? And so let's pray, and then we'll jump in into this great, great psalm. And before I pray, would you guys go first, and would you just whatever, whatever adversity comes to mind, maybe it's yours or somebody close to you that you care about. So just go before God and say, God, please teach me something fresh about you, in particularly in how you're calling me to face adversity. Like in, if there is an adversity in your life, it's probably just popping right to your mind, like you know it. Or maybe someone else comes to mind and there's some truths you can share with them. But just say, God, would you teach me this morning about adversity? God, you're awesome. Thank you that this psalm is going to speak to us directly, even though written about 1,500 years ago, uh, or, or, or more, I'm sorry, way more than that, but just it's, in spite of it being an old, old psalm 2,500 years ago, that, that you are still alive and speaking to us today. So speak to your people, God. Help us battle adversity well in our lives with the truths that we hear today. In Jesus' name, amen. So Psalm 34, if you're there, there are some psalms that start, like if you're in a Bible, you might notice there's like a little backstory to this psalm. And so I think this backstory is really interesting. Like the wording says, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech. You go, what in the world is that? So we won't go there, but in 1 Samuel 21, it tells the backstory that the David, if you followed his life, like he had a major uptick in his life. As a boy, called to be the next king. He kills Goliath. He gets to marry the king's daughter. He, I mean, it's just an upward trend in his life until one day the king turns on him and begins to hate David and, and pursues David and tries to kill him. And in one of those moments in David's life, he is literally on the run, like sometimes with no provision, just on his own uh, facing the king and his army trying to kill him, all right? And so this moment must have gotten so low because in order to get provisions, David went to the king of the Philistines. He went to a town called Gath, and that's where Goliath was from. So David killed Goliath, remember? And so now he's going there for help. He's going, it's like a cyclone coming to Iowa City for help. Like, it's just not going to happen. So he's going to the enemy camp looking for help. And when he's there, some of the people notice him. Maybe some of the other like soldiers is like, man, that's David. And so they grab him and they bring him before the king. And they say, king, this is the guy. Remember the songs they used to sing that King Saul killed his thousands, but David killed his ten thousands. This is the David. Let's get him. Yeah. And so David is in a big time mess, right? So just probably bound, brought before the king, all of his enemies, identifying who he is. He's got to get out. Now, I don't know that he ever played this, this trick 
again or before, but what came to David in the moment was, I'm going to act like a madman. And so somehow he grabbed some magic markers or something. And he started writing on the walls like he was just going crazy, writing on the walls and the doors. He started foaming at the mouth. Like I said, his beard was dripping with spit. Like he's just going absolutely nuts. And then if you were one of the king's guy, this had to be a little offensive. The king said, enough. He said, I've got enough madmen in my presence. I don't need one more. Get him out of here. So that's that's the story. If you don't believe me, it's 1 Samuel 21. You can read it. And so David writes Psalm 34. He's probably like just tearing out a gaff, like in disbelief. Like that just worked? Like really? Like just some markers and foam in the mouth and I'm gone? Like, God, you're awesome. Like just, and so maybe that helps as we read the first 10 verses. This is like the expression of his heart. This God just let him escape. David says, I will pray. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man, like I had no choice but to act like I was insane. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear his name, and he delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. So I see two things just kind of emerging from these first 10 verses. First of all, David is just praising the qualities of his deliverer. Like, let me tell you about my God. Like, so, so God used this adversity in David's life one more time to remind David about how awesome God is. See, I think God entrusts leadership or responsibility in somebody who knows I don't have it, but God does. Like, God responds to humility, and we're seeing David's heart of humility saying, my God is awesome. And so, so he's saying, God is my hope. God is my strength. I will make my boast in God. Not like, oh, I'm really clever. I came up with the foaming beard thing. Like, no, his, his response is all toward how awesome his God is. My God hears. My God sees. My God responds. In my desperation, God met me. In fact, if you read through all of Psalm 34, the key word that just keeps popping up again and again and again in the English, it's the word, it just says the Lord, the Lord. Some of your Bibles that may be all caps, all capitalized. And so that's the name of God, the name Jehovah, that God is a loyal covenant keeping God. Like in the midst of adversity, David knew that it wasn't his power, it wasn't his strength that got him out of this. He knew it was his loyal covenant keeping God who is strong, who is great, who hears and sees what I'm going through, and he meets with me. And so can I say, um, Psalm 34, by, by the way, not that I'm a scholar in this, but if you knew the Hebrew language, like this psalm is an acrostic. It means like every verse starts with the next letter of the alphabet, except verse 6 for some reason. Other than that, it's like, it's like David is saying, you know what, from A to Z, my God is awesome. Let me tell you about quality after quality after quality about my God. And so if we could pause for us for a second, Psalm 34 is a great promotion 
for theology. Again, that sounds boring and stuffing, but theology is just simply the study of God. Do you know God? And so in his moment of trouble, David had this whole litany of truths that he knew about God. Daniel 11.32 says that those who know their God stand strong and take action. So a good discipline for us to grab onto as God's people today is to make sure we know God. And let me just give you a couple just kind of like daily disciplines you can do. One thing I try to do is I try to read the Bible every day. I fish from three ponds. It means I read from three different parts of the Bible. And then I have a journal, just nothing special, just a book that I write in. And I start with like praise. What do I see? What did I see about God in those parts of the Bible that I read? So maybe God, you're awesome. God, you're strong. God, you're faithful. And then I try to connect that with things that I've seen in my life. So I praise him and thank him at the start of somewhere in my day. And so that's a simple discipline that you can do to start building a reservoir in your mind, in your heart of who God is. All right. And so another discipline I try to do is I like to at least once a week, you know, get out to pray, like get out of my house, get out of my office. And so around Parkview um, at Central Campus, there's a great place to just go for a walk. And so what I've started doing the last year or so is just praying to God in short sentences. And I'll say, God, you just, you blank. Like it's a, fill that in with a verb. God, you care. God, you know. God, you understand. Like just rehearsing those things as a way to praise him. And another discipline you see David doing here is, is public praise. Like when he just had this great story deliverance, he didn't keep it quiet and just write it in his journal. Like he wanted everybody to know, right? Hey, everybody, join with me. Let's exalt God together. So maybe weave that into your discipline that when believers are gathering, if you're at a meeting that I lead, one thing I like to do at meetings is to just start with praises. What are we seeing God do? Guys, what are we, what are we excited about? Where is God moving? Because it's so easy to just put our heads down and just do the next thing or just do the next line of business and forget to get our eyes up and just see, man, God is moving. Like God is doing awesome things. And so, so David didn't just whip out Psalm 34, okay? David is a man who disciplined himself to really know his God. And so that's a good, that's a good invitation to us as well, a good challenge. So we saw that, that he, he praised his deliverer, but also he gives kind of the response to those who are delivered. What happens to us when God delivers us? And so I would say this for the Christian, like, don't be surprised that God's going to still let us go through hard times because it's in those times that we lift our eyes up and we see who God is. In fact, if we were to break up into groups this morning of, you know, four or five people and just maybe write down first, like, what are the five most life-changing events in your life? Like things that just, just you look back at the landscape of your life and these are the five huge life-changing moments for me. Most likely two or three of those will be hard But yet in that hardship, God did something in you. God taught you some things that did just alter the course of your life. All right. And so that's exactly what happened to David here. As he went through hardship, he looked up and he saw who God is. And then he used things like this, that that this poor man cried out. He realized his brokenness, right? His humility. He knew he didn't have it all, that he needed God. So he was taught dependence. He was taught humility but he was also taught that God would meet him in his weakness and that even young lions will grow tired and hungry, but that he can be strong no matter what he faces because he can turn to God. David doesn't have to be in control, but he knows the one who is in control. 
and that will get him through, and that will change him as a man. So there was a great book I read about four years ago or so. It was written by Ben Sherwood. He used to write for the New York Times. Now he's, his title is he's with the Disney Media Group, and he's one of the co-chairmen of that. It's a pretty big guy. So, but he wrote a book about 10 years ago called The Survivor's Club. It's a really interesting book. Like he did a, a vast study on who survives hardship. Like when a plane crashes and one person survives, he did a study on that person. Or when there's an avalanche and all the explorers get wiped out except one. Who was that one and what? So it's a fascinating book. He does like 12 case studies. And so, for example, on plane crashes, they found out that the ones who tend to survive crashes are young, in shape, and less than 12 rows from an exit. Okay, that there's statistically, those are some of the factors. Um, also found that, that right-handed people tend to live longer than left-handed people. Sorry about that, left-handed people. But it's because there's kind of this inherent bias toward people being right-handed. That, so lots of fascinating stuff. He does a deep dive. But one thing that blew him away, he's an atheist, he's not a Christian. But one thing that blew him away was the role of faith in survival. Like, of all these extreme cases of survival, 75 to 85% of the people would say it was their faith in God that helped them get through that. He was absolutely shocked about that. And so in his research, he came across a guy named Ray Smith who has written a book for the military called How to Survive on Land and Sea. And this Ray Smith said, it is an absolute certainty that in any true book written on survival, the first chapter should be on faith in God. So it's not just like David, it's not just the Bible saying this, like our, our world and experts who study survival and people that make it through adversity agree that it's as we, we, we turn to God that we're going to find a strength that's going to help us face any adversity. So David found this to be true. A poor, humble, desperate man cried out and God heard him and God delivered him. And David said, taste and see, you guys. God is good, even in the midst of adversity. So the first part of Psalm 34, David is saying, like, praise God. He's awesome. He's good. And so the second half of 34, he's going to say, okay, so praise God. But now let's learn from God. Let's fear God. So the whole next part of this psalm is going to be about fearing God. And so let's just catch that for a little bit. What does it mean to fear God? Like God doesn't want you walking around like wetting your pants and shaking like, oh no, God's going to get me today or he's going to stomp on me like a cricket and just smear me. Like that's not it. Fear has that, has a fear component to it. But I think fear means awe, just to be so enamored with God as being great and good. Like you are so blown away that you would not even consider trusting anyone else besides God because you're just amazed, you're in awe of how great, how good he is. And so verse 11 through 14, David says, Come, children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. For what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And so uh, David's here, you see him now kind of shifting gears where he really wants to teach his people. He's calling them children, not condescendingly, but just out of a heart relationship for them. Like, guys, you really need to understand who God is. Let me teach you the fear of the Lord. And then he just talks about being in awe of God's ways, like to pursue, to pursue good, um, to watch our speech, to keep our tongues from evil, to seek peace and endure it. So what, what he's saying here is like, you know what? In times of trouble, 
Cling to God in his ways. He is good. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's teaching. And what's really interesting is we live in a world today that goes the exact opposite direction. And maybe it's easy for your heart to go the exact opposite direction. Then when things get hard, we blame God instead of like being in awe of God. Like, God, what are you doing? I just heard a speaker this week that talked about uh, a, an ad campaign in Australia that all the buses in Australia, this is like five years ago or so, had this statement on the buses. It said, if God exists, he better have a good excuse. If God exists, he better have a good excuse. And the speaker I was listening to was saying, now isn't this interesting that Australia is usually one of the most prosperous countries in our world, when you look at all the surveys, usually lands in the top five. And so how, you know, there are so many other places in the world you would expect could say, God, uh, if you exist, why are things so hard? But even in Australia, people are asking that question. That statement is actually a quote from Woody Allen, the playwright, the guy who did actually really well. Like you compare Woody Allen to people who've ever walked the planet as far as riches, achievement, success, gifting. But it's that, that statement came from Woody Allen. God, if you really exist, you better have a good excuse. He contrasted that, the speaker I was listening to, with how sometimes the two-thirds world responds to suffering. And it's completely different. Like how two-thirds of our world lives on $2 a day or less. When you look at suffering in some of those cultures, it's a completely different response. When the big earthquake hit Haiti, it was about six, seven years ago, um, was it like 220,000 people, I think, died like in, in that. And there were 1.3 million people homeless. But on the first Sunday after that earthquake, the churches were just jammed. In fact, many of the churches had to meet outside because their building was down. And in that first week after the earthquake in Haiti, 400,000 Haitians put their faith in Jesus Christ. And that was just in Baptist churches alone. Like so, in calamity, the Haitian people didn't run from God and weren't angry at God. They ran to God. And it's really interesting that that's what David is saying here. It's what David did. Hey, when adversity came, man, I ran to God. I'm in awe of God. Like, he's in charge. He's good. He's going to teach me through this. So in awe of God's ways, David was also then in awe of God's presence. Like, in the midst of his hardship, these are things he said. He said, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory from them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. So the second thing David is in awe of here is like, God was with me. Like in the midst of all my adversity, God is a God who draws near to broken hearts. He doesn't stand back. He doesn't just say, hey, I hope you make it through that. Like in any time in his life, he sensed the presence of God. So C.S. Lewis is a famous Christian author, and he wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. And in C.S. Lewis's life, there was a lot of pain. He lost his wife. Um, His mom died at an early age. His dad was emotionally distant and abandoned him as a child. He was was injured in World War I, like just several hard things. And for many years, he was an atheist, agnostic, had nothing to do with God. But when he began to follow Jesus, he penned one of these statements, like one of his most famous statements, where he said this, Pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. Like it's in our moments of adversity when all else is stripped away, 
that we realize God is all we have. And it's at those moments we understand or we maybe experience the nearness of God. Again, if we don't go the direction of that Australian motto of God, where are you? What are you doing? But say, God, I need you. You will sense the presence of God like at no other time in your life. And David was blown away at that. Why would God, why would this amazing God be so near to me in the midst of adversity? So David's in awe of God's presence. And then last, he's in awe of God's comfort. Okay. He says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. But the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of them who take refuge in him will be condemned. So just kind of the punchline, the summary here is like, God, I am in awe of you. That in the midst of adversity, you bring comfort, you bring hope, you bring deliverance. And so let me just wrap it up with this uh, thought. As you read through that, there might be some questions coming to mind. It's like, okay, like, first of all, he says that he's going to deliver his people. He's going to deliver the righteous. He's going to keep all their bones, and none of them will be broken. How many of you guys have broken a bone, this, like, in here? Okay, I'm looking around. Okay, yeah, we've got some broken bones here. Did you ever wonder, like, did you just kind of wander off the path here? Like, I just turned his head or said, no, you're going to break a bone because you're not righteous here. Okay, what's going on here? Where it says the Lord redeems the life of his servants. Like, how many of us know godly people that suffer, godly people that go through affliction? Like, at, at some level, you could look at this and say, what comfort, God, are you talking about? Because in this life, I see a lot of righteous people still suffering. And so the key here is to have this eternal perspective of who God is, that God is a God who ultimately always delivers, always redeems his people. And so again, there's two, there's two entirely different approaches you can take towards adversity. So if you go the route of the atheist or the one who's mad at God, just pushing God away, you could, you could reflect this statement. So Richard Dawkins is an atheist, and he said this about suffering. He said, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we would expect. Uh, it, there's no design. There's no purpose. There's no evil. There's no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Suffering is natural. It is inevitable. There is nothing we can do about it. We are hopeless, and we are powerless. So if you were to take God completely out of the equation because affliction doesn't make sense to you, like, okay, God, why am I afflicted? Like, if I'm following you and I'm good, you say nobody's bones are going to be broken. Like, what's going on here? And so you could go that direction of Richard Dawkins and say it's because there is no God. There is no good. There is no evil. And so where that leads you to is a place of despair, a place of, of suffering, that this is hopeless and we're powerless. But I think with God in the picture and with an understanding of God's promises, here's where I think that takes you. I think it ultimately points us to Jesus, who is our ultimate redeemer and deliverer. Okay, so Jesus lived about a thousand years after David. And Jesus, you know, David was writing in the Psalms about the Lord. The Lord delivers. The Lord, you know, Jehovah, the loyal God, the covenant-keeping God. And so ultimately, the expression of God's covenant-keeping love came through Jesus Christ, who came a thousand years later. Jesus stepped into our broken world. He stepped into our affliction. He never sinned. Like Jesus did not deserve affliction, did not deserve hardship or suffering, but he stepped into our hardship, into our suffering, and on the cross took our sin 
and in exchange gives us his life. Okay, so Jesus disarmed all this like source of affliction, source of pain in our lives. Jesus took it for us on the cross and now he gives us new life. And it's interesting that when the apostle John, one of Jesus' disciples, was, was recording the death of Jesus, he gave us this detail that when they were taking the bodies off the crosses the day Jesus was crucified, that they did not break any of the bones of Jesus. He was already dead. Sometimes they would break a bone to make somebody die quicker. Jesus was already dead. And so in John 19.36, John says, For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled, that not one of his bones would be broken. Like that that promise in, Isaiah, in, in Psalm 34 was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He died as our perfect sacrifice. And so now through Jesus, we have hope that in any affliction, we'll triumph over it. Like just Jesus died, rose again from the, get, from the dead, defeated our greatest affliction. And now through faith in him, we too experience the same thing. And so Jesus, when you look at his life, he came right alongside people who suffered adversity. And one I just want to close this with is in John 11, one of his closest friends named Lazarus died. And um, kind of a backstory here is that Jesus waited two days before he went to see Lazarus. And in that two-day window, he died. And so Jesus was also good friends with Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha. And both of these women came to Jesus with the same question. Martha met Jesus outside as he's walking toward the house. They said, Jesus, where were you? Like, why didn't you stop this? And so um, what happened? Like, why did Lazarus die? And it's interesting that when Jesus met Martha, he gave her explanation. He talked to her about that he is the resurrection and the life, that he will raise Lazarus from the dead. Do you believe this? And so he gave Martha truth and evidence that she needed. But it's interesting, just a few minutes later, Martha, I'm, I'm sorry, Mary comes running out and she just falls at the feet of Jesus. And she says, Jesus, why did Lazarus die? Where were you? And so Jesus gives her a completely different response. They move out towards the tomb where Lazarus was. And it says two things happened to Jesus. One is he got really angry, really angry at death and what death had done to this family. And then two verses later, it says that Jesus wept. Totally different response. Martha got answers. Mary got the heart of Jesus. And even though Jesus knew just minutes later he was going to raise Lazarus, he was still angry at death. Even if death is just lingering for a day or two, he was so angry at it, and he was so grieved at what death had done to this family. And so then Jesus spoke those powerful words and said, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, come out. So he defeated death, and he defeated the ultimate affliction by bringing Lazarus out of the tomb. And so what we see in that story is as we go through adversity— with Jesus, we know that on the other end, Jesus is victorious and we will be too. But as we walk through adversity, whatever you need, Jesus is right there with you. Do you need answers? Do you need some truth? He's, he's got that. He can bring perspective. But do you just need a Savior who cares and who just walks with you? Like when I met with James this morning, the guy whose died, dad died yesterday, like all, all he needed this morning, we just hugged. And, and I just listened. Uh, if that's what you need from Jesus, he's right there with you. But what is so cool is that he's not just a savior who can give you a few answers, or he's not just a savior who's going to cry with you and can't do anything else. 
But he's a savior. He can do both of those things and they can defeat your greatest affliction. Just boom. Because he died, rose again from the dead. And so that is our hope in any adversity. So we end with these verses. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, angels or rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, or anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. So, Jesus, whatever the affliction that came to people's mind this morning when we started looking at your word, I just pray you would take these truths and just calm and comfort and give strength to hearts in this room that are going through affliction. And Jesus, I thank you that you're ready to bring whatever we need to give us comfort. If it's truth or if it's just love and grace, that you're just right there to cry with us or to point us to what's true. But on the bottom line, I thank you that you're a savior that doesn't just give us a few words and give us a hug, but you're a savior who gives us deliverance because you died for us and you rose again from the dead. So help us be a people, help us be a church, help us be families that just stand out in this city that when we face adversity, man, we face it totally differently because we know that you are good, we know that you are with us, and we know that you are our deliverer. So God, thank you.